your Bibles, we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through probably 18. Hopefully we can get through this entire lesson that I have for you this morning or that God placed on my heart to, to share. On Tuesday, June 6, 1944, listen to this, about 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying Allied troops approached the southern beaches in, Fran, in France for one of the largest invasions in, in modern history. That invasion is something we know now today in reference as D-Day. Many of you are familiar with that. Some of the men and, um, and women who survived said that they remember the steady stream of exhortations that were being broadcasted over the ship's intercoms. And listen to what some of the things that were being said. One of the first ones was, fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. We may die on the sands of France, but we will never return back. This is it. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and, that, and this is the end of the line. You see, the, the sad news is that about 2,500 soldiers that day died within a span of about 15 minutes. Can you even comprehend that? It's pretty, pretty hard to. So they say some soldiers would literally have to crawl over other bodies just to get ashore. That's how devastating it was. Um, and images like that, when we think of a battle or something like that, we immediately become grateful for the men and women who serve our country to protect what we know as our freedom, as, as we're all here today as a result of our freedom. But today I bring this up, though, because I want to emphasize that when these men approached the beaches that day, they had no delusions as to what they were getting into. None whatsoever. You see, they knew they were not going to France for a, a, a vacation. And they knew they were walking headfirst into the onslaught of an enemy that wanted nothing more than to just destroy them. At the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul kind of pulls back the curtains on life a little bit, and he shows us that we're in the midst of a battle, a battle that is no less stringent with an enemy that is no less fierce. But here's the tragedy, that many of us just today, we have no idea we're even in a battle. That's the way we approach life. We approach life as if it's just like a playground, just fun and games, and you know we don't consider the fact that we too are in a battle with an enemy. Um, can you imagine for a second if, if the soldiers that day that approached France, if they showed up like many of us do when we go to the beach? Think about it. We have our, our coolers and our umbrellas and our flip-flops and our, um, our kids' rubber duckies. Can you imagine thinking if they approached that, the beach that day with that mindset? Imagine what they would have felt in walking into. I mean, it would have been... Very shocking for them. You see, the thing about it is that Satan sees running out of time. And we're running out of time as believers. You know, every day that passes is another day that we're closer to our eternal destination. And Satan, he knows that he's running out of time. And he knows that he needs to ramp up um, on his attacks on us. You know, what do we do when we procrastinate? A lot of times we wait until the end, whether you cram for an exam or a test you're taking, you wait till the end, and then you, you ramp it up. You get into the books, you start studying hard. Well, a lot of us wait 
till the end to get really motivated. And I think that's kind of what Satan is doing. I mean, every time that my wife has a honeydew list for me, I procrastinate until we have a big group of people coming over. And I'm like, well, I don't want them to see the house in this condition. So I get motivated and I do something about it. But usually that's, that's pretty much the only It's sad on my part, I know, as a husband. I should do um, the list, you know, in a, a much, much quicker fashion. But let's talk about the demon, demonic for a second. Or let me read this verse first. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, we have to, some of y'all are like, oh no, he's about to get weird. He's talking about demons and demonic, you know. I mean, don't worry, we're not going to have poisonous snakes being brought out and brought to the front here. That's actually like the end of the service. So I'm also kidding. But C.S. Lewis put it this way. When it comes to the demonic, it usually falls into one or two you usually fall into one or two areas in what you think about it. Some of you take it altogether too seriously, and others do not take it seriously enough. An example of that would be, you know, you tell your kids to go clean the room, and they don't. You immediately say, well, they're just being demonic, you know, or your car battery dies, and you immediately result to the fact that that's demonic. Satan's trying to come against me. Or there's a price increase at Bojangles, and you think, well, they're just trying to keep me from tithing by ruining my budget. You know, there's a demon under every rock for some people in that era. But in another era, there are those that, again, they don't even acknowledge the fact that there's, any, there's no evil forces that are coming against us, that that's not even present in our life. But that's, a, that's an equally dangerous thing when we commit that. Let's see. Satan, when we think of him... He really doesn't care if you believe in him or not. He really doesn't. Because, see, Satan, he's not out for your recognition. He's out for your destruction. And that's something that we need to be mindful of as believers. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls him the angel of light. See, this, this really spoke to me. which That actually means that he'll transform himself into any way that he can that's best suited to deceive you specifically. And it even means that um, it, you may even mistake him for an angel of God. But in Peter 5, 8, it says, to be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, you see, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That should concern us. That should, should make us alert. I mean, when we get on Facebook and we see that someone has broken out of prison and they're loose within our state, we freak out. We go, man, we got to sleep with our shotgun tucked beside us or our pistol, you know, and we, we got all the doors locked. We're focused on that. Why would we prepare for something like that? But when, when, when scriptures tell us Satan and what he's trying to do to come against us in our lives, why would we not prepare for that? And we're going to look at that here in a second as we, we continue in, into this. But um, Peter 5, 8, it shows us a couple of things when we read it. Um, number one is Satan. You see, he's like a hunter. And I'm a hunter, so I can relate to this. Satan is like a hunter because hunters, you see, they don't, 
necessarily want you to be seen or want, you don't want to be seen when you go into the woods. I mean, it's not like we break out our real tree camouflage and we iron it and put nice creases in it so that we can go into the woods and walk down a, a runway or a logging road so we can do a few twirls for the animals. That's not what we do. We go into the woods as quietly, as undetected as, as much as possible. As a matter of fact, they even have a lot of people are purchasing um, golf carts or electric scooters to get into the woods undetected. And that's what Satan tries to do in our life. The second thing is that Peter refers to, he refers to a lion in Scripture and, refer, and relates that to Satan. And I've always wondered what the Bible said about cats, and it's pretty obvious there that cats are demonic. It's proven right there in the Scriptures. I'm just kidding. I have two cats. Everybody calm down. One is a stray cat. One was a pet. But you see, the thing is, is just because we can't see him doesn't mean that he isn't there. In 1864, a physician named, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but Ignaz Semmelweis or whatever, stumbled onto a theory, and we're all familiar with this, the germ theory. I know because many of you have Germex attached to your purse or have a big tube of it in your vehicle. But you see, in those days, people thought that diseases would just spontaneously generate in the body and, um, because there was just something wrong with the body. Well, Doctors would actually, this was interesting, they would actually go in between patients and over here in one minute they would be working on a dead corpse and in another minute run down the hall and in between not wash their hands and then go and deliver a baby. So this is one of the reasons why death rates in hospitals were so increasingly high, mothers and children, all right? Well, see, he began to suspect that they were carrying diseases with them by doing this in small particles invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call it, so he just basically called them microbes, which literally means little pieces of flesh, okay? And um, he tested his theory through interns that would come to the, to the hospital and work, and he would have them wash their hands in chlorine and water before delivering babies. And as a matter of fact, the mortality rates actually went down dramatically because, and, but yet people still didn't believe him because it was something that he, they could not see. They could not put their, uh, they, they couldn't see it. They didn't have microscopes back then to, to detect those kind of things. Well, it was, it was actually two decades that passed when someone else came along and proved the theory in a different way. But you see, many Christians are equally naive when it comes to the things that we can't see. We, we can't see Satan, so to speak, so... We just assume that he's not there. He's not at work in our lives. Andy Stanley put it this way, that if you want to see the evidence of the demonic in your life, you look in the rear view. You don't find it in a microscope, but you look it in the rear view mirror. Not at your kids, but in the rear view mirror of life. Okay? Because if you think about it, think about that for a second. When you look back and you, you can remember certain temptations or certain things that were just just too perfectly and specifically tailored to just be coincidental and temptation in your life. And for many of us, we take that, um, we lose that battle, you know, that Satan, and he comes against us in those times and in those moments. Some things we actually see, and, you know, it's, it's incredible the, thing that, the things that are out there on the Internet now, when violence and things, things that just jump right out at us that are just 
very obvious. Things like maybe a terrorist attack or Christians being killed for just being Christians. Or maybe a mother who just left her baby for dead, you know, on someone's or by a dumpster. We can see those things and we immediately know, hey, man, that's just, that's evil. You know, that's demonic. Well, you ask yourself, how can these things happen? How can people do these things? Well, it's because of the verse we just read. You see, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against spiritual evil in high places. And it's funny because when we think these battles come down and we fight these battles, sometimes we want to fight them ourselves, you know, and we want to forget God in certain situations. And we kind of act foolish sometimes when it comes to battles here in this earth, Um I had a friend tell me recently that when you're physically in a fight, you don't really feel anything. And I believe that because I can remember when I was younger and uh, I'd, I'd kind of gotten in a situation with this guy and, you know, we were going to have to handle business, you know, I mean, whatever, I don't know what else to call it, but <laughs> you're going to laugh here in a second, um, but so I, would, I approached this person, or he approached me, actually, and um, we ended up getting into a physical altercation. All I can remember, honestly, he, and my friend was right. You, didn't, you don't feel anything because I can remember at the end, I was literally face down, okay, and laying flat on my back. So get that image in your mind real quick, which is not a fun place to be in. And I can just remember, I had some encouraging friends, right? Because at, when I got up, the first thing that I said to my buddies was, did I win? And they said, man, you, it was a close one. It was a close one. But I don't remember, and I don't, I, now I did feel it the next day, and it was, um, it was pretty rough on me. But see, God tells us these things in Ephesians chapter 6 for a couple of reasons. Number one is to make us more alert. Some of us in church today, we just need to, we need to become more alert about what's around us. I mean, if we need to turn loose an animal in the church, is that's what it takes. That's what we need to do because you, a lot of people are just asleep to what God is doing in their life, you know, and, or not doing for that matter. But you see, again, it's not against just lustful things and weakness and personality conflicts that Satan comes against us. He comes for us when we're tired. He definitely comes for us when we're bored, when we don't have anything going on. Boredom is when Satan will just, man, he'll hammer you if you're not careful. And in, the, in those times we're down, he seduces us with the lust of the flesh. But listen to this. He will also come for you when you've done well because he will make you feel that you're special, you're significant. And that can be an issue as well. The second thing is that in Ephesians that we see that's important is to drive us to a greater dependency on God. If this were merely a battle between just us, it will be one thing. But again, it's not between us, okay? It's against an enemy with supernatural power, all right? So Paul concludes the book of Ephesians by reminding them of the presence of these spiritual forces in an attempt to turn them away once again from just trusting in themselves, all right? A couple places in, um, or I want to read this chapter 6, verse 10 real quick. We've covered verse 12. Verse 10 says, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we're going to jump to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Now, a couple of phrases I want to key in on here about what, this, what the scripture is telling us is the first thing is to stand firm. You see, many of us think that we can escape Satan's fight, but we can't. It would be like if this room were just closed off in a big square room with all the lights on, no pews in here, just wide open, and then trying to play a game of hide-and-go-seek. How ridiculous would that be? We would know exactly where everyone was at. Satan knows where we're at. He knows a lot about us and our weakness. So stand firm. There's a couple of places in Scripture where Paul refers to Christians fleeing and where they can and should flee, and that is sexual immorality and the love of money. Those are the areas. If when it comes to monies and honeys, you get out of town, all right? I'm telling you, it, it'll take you down. And uh, you can't protect. Here's the thing, guys. You, we try to protect our kids by placing them in one youth group and take them and put them in another. Or we take them in one school and put them in another school. And there are some times in our life as parents where we need to get our kids away from certain people. That's not what I'm saying. But don't, don't think that you can escape enemies, the enemy's attack, Satan, when he comes against us. We cannot run from it. So the second thing is we need to be strong in the Lord and in his strength, not our strength. Because, see, our strengths can sometimes become liabilities in our life, okay? Because you forget to depend on God and lean on him when we need to. That's why I believe, personally, this is, this is out of my comfort zone, being up here. I'm, gonna be, I'm just going to be honest with you. But we have to go beyond our comfort zone so that we can grow. You cannot grow in the comfort zone of life. It's, and we have to push ourselves and into areas of life, and, and God will do that to make us squirm and get nervous and, and grow. So let's dive into these spiritual armors real quick, and um, starting with verse 14. It, it points out the belt of truth in the Scriptures. Now, your belt obviously goes around your core, right? It holds up all your weapons in place and the rest of your armor in place. And this metaphor is extremely important because nobody wants to go to battle with their pants around their ankles. So obviously, it's important. But when Paul, what does Paul mean by this truth, the belt of truth? Well, for us, we always think of truth as primarily a what. But in Scripture, it is first referred to as a who. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so it's important that we understand that. But he's saying, gird yourself up with Jesus, all right? Make your, listen to this, make your identity in Christ the center of your life. You see, many times, and, and I fall into this, many times we're con more concerned about what others think. And we rob ourselves from what God is trying to do in our life. Because we're too concerned about, man, I would get up and sing, but I'm too worried about what people are going to say about my voice, or I'm too nervous to get up and share my testimony because, man, I've done a lot. Listen, I've done a lot in my life, and if, I mean, you can look at just the characters in the Bible and, and get a comfort, a sense of comfort that comes from the Word of God. We're going to look into that here in a second. 
But you see, what do you, I want to ask you a question. What do you believe about the Word of God? What do you believe about that book? And does how you treat it, listen to this, line up with that, with what you believe? A professor at UNC, a skeptic who teaches actually the New Testament, is credited by leading thousands of freshman students away from their faith. And here's how he does it. He starts out the class, and I'm going to ask you this question this morning too. He starts the class out by holding up the Word of God saying, do you believe this book is the Word of God? And a lot of hands go up, just like many in this room would go up. And the second question that he asked them is, well, have you read it cover to cover? And a lot of hands go down. And then he says, you mean to tell me this book that was written by the almighty God and you haven't even read it cover to cover? You see, he's trying to show them and convince them that only their minds think that they believe in God and not their heart. So that's a lesson for me, and that's something that I want to challenge the church with today. Do you truly believe in the Word of God? And if so, does how you treat it line up with that? The second thing that the belt of truth implies is that you ground your perspectives on things. Does it line up with how you ground your perspective on things that it says? Things like, Sexuality, marriage, the purpose of life, how you spend your money. Do those things line up with Scripture? Okay? If you're not reading it to get the instruction you need, then chances are your, your mind is being shaped by the things of this world. Listen to this. The only way to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the Word of God shape your thinking. That's the only way. I want to read that again because that's important. The only way to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the Word of God shape your thinking. The second thing is take up the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I wish I could wear a breastplate because the nice thing about a breastplate is it already has the perfect pecs and abs already wedged into it. So no matter what the jiggle is going on behind the breastplate, you see perfection, right? And I wish we could... And by the way, these are metaphors, so nobody go out and buy you know, a sword or a breastplate or anything like that. It's just things to relate to the gospel. But a breastplate, you see, it covers your vital organs, which, what does he mean by covering your vital organs with righteousness? What does he mean by that? He says the breastplate of righteousness, you see, it refers to power of a holy life. I, I really believe that there's people in this room today that could care less if they are living a holy life. They really could. Could care less. We've got to fix that. We've got to change that if we're going to allow God to do what he wants to do here at this church. But the breastplate of righteousness is important. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin." So that we could be made right with God through Christ. So first is taking Christ's righteousness as our own, as ours. 
Okay? That's what he's implying here. But there's also an obedience element to this. Okay? Um, Not only are we covered in Christ's righteousness, but we are to bring our lives into conformity with it. All right? Let's jump down to the, um, the next piece of armor, which is the boots of peace. Now, a lot of people um, only think of the sword of the Spirit as an offensive weapon or prayer, but shoes can also be an offensive weapon as well because your shoes are actually what carry you or your feet can actually carry you into battle, okay? And um, can be also seen as an offensive weapon because, you see, sometimes we don't... The, the thing is, is that Paul says that we should overcome the battle by going on the offense with the gospel. Think about that for a second. When we go on the offense and share our faith and share Christ, doesn't that kind of leave less space in our life for Satan to work? When we're, and many of us, I believe honestly that many of us um, do not share our faith because of our lifestyles, because of the things that we choose to allow Satan to do in our lives. So our mouths are silent and our voice is not heard because we're embarrassed by the things that we're doing. And, the, and how we live. And I've been there in moments like that in my life. Well, how can anyone ever be interested in the Word of God until they hear it? You see, the church needs to step up and begin to share Christ more so that people can begin to allow the Word of God to work in their lives. The gospel has the power. Listen to this statement right here. This is awesome. The, co- the gospel has the power in it to give spiritual life interest to those that are disinterested. But when we don't say anything, and we don't stand up for God in our lives, on our jobs, or in our friendships, or even within our family, we're doing God a disservice, and we're not allowing God to, to work in our lives. I read a, recently of a soul winner who, he, he put it in two things that every evangelist believes. The first thing is that salvation belongs to God. And I believe that. The second thing is faith comes by hearing of the Word of God. You see, hearing the Word of God creates an interest in the Word of God. So it's important that we share Christ. Think about it. Isn't that how you were when you were first exposed to the Word of God? You weren't necessarily interested in it. But you heard it, and it began to grow inside of you. It began to change you from the inside out. It's not For some, it, it's pretty immediate. But for others, it takes time. The next thing is the shield of faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith, verse 16, by which we extinguish the fiery darts that the wicked one throws at us. This is really a way of summing up all the other pieces, and we're almost done. Satan's main weapon are the lies that he throws at us, the fiery darts. If he can attack our identity and who we say we are in Christ, man, he will tear us down. He's trying to attack you as a husband. He's trying to attack you as a wife. He's trying to make you think that, um, man, if I left my wife, things would be so much better, or if I left my husband, things would be so much better. And he will plan things in your life. Satan will. He will set the stage for stuff. Remember what I said. He's going to attack you in what's best suited towards you. And don't be, don't be a, a man who... Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you're in a shoe store, and I, I like the, the image of a shoe store because 
you're kind of trapped in between, a, in between two aisles, and um, at least the ones that I go into. Uh, and let's say a, a half-dressed woman comes down that aisle. Okay, think of the shield of faith. And you can look at that in one or two ways. You can either gawk at her and literally trip up over yourself and maybe knock down a whole aisle of shoes because you're, you're trying to break your neck and look that way. Or if you have to, you just remember this, this study that we're going through right now. Remember that Satan is trying to set those things up to target our minds. And if you have to, throw up an invisible sword, uh, shield in that aisle and just recognize for what it is and yell some kind of cry out or something. Just, you know, Spartans, something like that. And just look at the lady and just throw your shield down and just walk off like you conquered that battle in your life. And, I mean, if that's what it takes, do it. Because it would be better that you do that and look ridiculous in a shoe store than allow those thoughts to just take over in your mind. And if you're a woman in here today, don't be the woman that's dressed with half clothes on. Okay, somebody that only has maybe 60% cotton and nothing else on their body, you know, come on now, you can't, you can't be putting guys in situations like that. You have a responsibility too. The next one is the helmet of salvation. This is where it kind of repeats um, in a new way what the scriptures are telling us here, but it specifically targets your head when you think of putting on a helmet, all right? Paul is telling us, telling us to let the truth about our salvation and God's grace in our lives permeate and flood our minds, okay? If we're not flooding our minds with good things from the Word of God and we're not supporting one another, going back to the shield for a second, if you think of an army, a lot of times they'll build like a shield wall together. It'd be multiple people working together to build that shield wall. And it's the same concept with taking on the full armor of God. We're gonna, sometimes we just need one another. We need to realize that it's, this battle, it's tough. And it's not an easy thing. So we need to guard our minds. And the sixth thing is the sword of the Spirit. And now is when we transfer exclusively to offensive weapons. So now we've got our, our sword, which is actually the Word of God. Okay, which is, of course, what the Word of God was in some of the other spiritual armors as well, because it is hugely important. But he's telling us to so master this book um, so that we know how to counteract against Satan's lies in our life. One put it this way, when life cuts us, we should bleed the Word of God in our lives. So your ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to the knowledge of this word. Your kid's ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to the knowledge of this word of God. So yes, absolutely, just like I do, have your kids in sports, have your kids in piano, have your kids in drums, have your kids in all these other things, but you better graduate your kids from your house knowing that word. Finally, prayer. It's final, but it's certainly not least. We cannot underestimate the power of prayer. So with every head bowed and every eye closed,